Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On today's show, we're going to discuss the history of U.S. energy policy, and we're going to be doing it with Dr. Peter Grossman, a professor of economics and specialist on energy at Butler University. And Dr. Grossman is the author of the new book, U.S. Energy Policy and the Pursuit of Failure, uh, which is a pretty comprehensive discussion of both the history of U.S. energy policy, particularly in the last four decades, uh, the ideas behind it, and the economic consequences. So it should be a really interesting discussion. Uh, enjoy it, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Peter Grossman, author of U.S. Energy Policy and the Pursuit of Failure. Peter, welcome to Power Hour. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right, so this is uh, a really important and, and quite philosophical book on energy policy. And one thing that I, I enjoy about the book is that it, it asks a lot of why questions, or, or it, it questions a lot of premises, such as should we be talking about energy policy, should we be talking about uh, energy uh, crisis. And from the outset, I'd like to deal with this issue of energy crisis, because often Interest in energy policy is motivated by, well, we had an energy crisis in 1973, we had one later in the 70s, we're headed for an energy crisis now, and yet you have a very different take on that, that very notion. What is or isn't an energy crisis? Well, an energy crisis is really something that's in people's heads, and usually it's a kind of uh, temporary disruption in uh, their expectations about what the energy market will actually be doing. And it's uh, not a very helpful way of thinking about it because it uh, conjures up the idea that there's some kind of major disaster that's uh, lurking and uh, that it's connected to somehow be associated with uh, uh, our supply of energy, the price of energy, and so on. All of the energy crises that we've had that have been named by uh, various people, by the press and by politicians, have been very transitory, and they've had very little in the way of a, a serious lasting impact on the economy or, uh, or, or our way of life, as a number of uh, uh, politicians have uh, been sure that we were in danger of, of, ch of changing our way of life because of energy crises. So I don't think that there's any such thing, really, as an energy cr crisis. It's a state of mind. And unfortunately, it, it crops up when people are uncomfortable, and so uh, and then it tends to dominate the discussion rather than looking at what is, what is possible and what is actually going on. One interesting aspect that came to mind while reading the book is just that there's so many negative things that can happen with energy that are just caused by government restrictions or the lack of production. If you look at some place like the third world, they have very little energy, and that's, that's a, a very negative and problematic thing. And yet our focus seems to be, you, even embedded in this terminology, entirely on some dramatic shift in the way of doing things. And yet 
you know, market, you know, a free market will correct that. And yet there doesn't be much concern about the drastic restrictions in production that many people are proposing. Uh, well, of course, a lot of people have various agendas that uh, they wind up connecting to energy. Uh, energy's had this history of uh, being uh, energy policy. If you get the right policy, it'll solve all sorts of problems. Uh, but in fact, uh, often those really aren't problems except for those people who have some kind of uh, interest in uh, obtaining the uh, uh, resources from the government. Uh, the question about uh, production uh, in the 1970s, basically price controls and allocation controls in natural gas and oil were the main reason that our production was lagging. Uh, there were also restrictions on where people could produce. and. Uh, it uh, developed into an idea that we were absolutely running out of oil and gas, which was, as we've seen, nonsense. So uh, I think that, in fact, uh, people often, though, will use energy uh, crises or, or crises generally as a way to advance a different kind of agenda uh, that may be only peripherally related to energy, uh, but uh, therefore they wind wind up advocating policies that specifically target energy and energy production and actually would be uh, not very useful for uh, energy uh, markets or for uh, American consumers. America doesn't, if we look at some of our most successful industries, we don't have a computer policy, mm. for example. Why do we have an energy policy and in what sense should we have one and shouldn't we have one well of course a lot of people will say if you say we have an energy policy they'll say no we don't well we uh, actually we have several energy policies or policies about various components of energy uh, that add add up to something that seems and is in many ways incoherent uh, uh, but uh, one of the things about energy is that uh, the price fluctuates and it's felt uh, directly by American consumers, whereas the price of computers may fluctuate, but uh, that would be something that they would encounter maybe once every four years. Uh, the price of energy fluctuating may, will be something they'll encounter several times a month. But uh, a lot of the time, uh, the uh, politicians are motivated by uh, what I call the do-something problem. Uh, they really don't want to deal with uh, energy because it's very complicated and they don't understand it. Uh, but uh, when things get, uh, when prices fluctuate, when there's spikes in prices, for example, people will start to complain and then it will often, or at least too often, lead to a, a new bill that will involve more restrictions and more distortions rather than anything that would be yeah. helpful. In terms of the mentality that, that leads to this, the mentality that regards a, a price fluctuation, at least in, in increase as a problem, people don't nearly as often regard fluctuations in the decreasing direction as a problem. How long has this, if, if we look at the arc of how Americans have looked at quote-unquote energy policy, was there ever a time when people were more mature or understanding of price fluctuations? Uh, well, of course, in uh, there, a lot of times in American history, there haven't been uh, very significant uh, price fluctuations. Uh, even in the uh, U.S. in the, the 1940s and 50s, uh, energy was uh, 
Uh, in real terms, a lot of energy prices were falling, so people were able to uh, buy more, uh, use more electricity, use more uh, oil and gas because uh, the price was going down in real terms. The, uh, so uh, a lot of it depends on uh, the uh, overall ec economic conditions and uh, market conditions generally. I mean, how much we are engaged in uh, a, an international market versus a more localized market. All of these things will affect uh, price fluctuations. We are in a, in a time of greater volatility in energy and have been for 40 years, energy prices that is. Uh, but it's uh, really nothing that's uh, held us back in, in any significant way. It may have annoyed people at times, but uh, if you look at how well we've done until from 1970 to, 19, uh, to 2008, uh, the U.S. economy was uh, very robust. And when it finally fell into the doldrums, it didn't have much to do with energy. It was uh, mainly because of the financial crisis and because of a different sort of bad policies uh, but uh, what happens with energy policies is they're made in a crisis. The crisis goes away, and often the policies are more or less quietly uh, dropped or uh, devalued, and uh, we go along our merry way, really depending on markets when we say we don't and that it's going to be bad for us. So there's the, the kind of crisis-type uh, responses in you know in U.S. policy history, which you, you uh, I definitely recommend the book for people interested in just getting the details of different responses from you know, '73 being the most uh, famous. But then there's there's the flip side of that, which is you know there's doing something about the negative, but then there's also doing something uh, about the positive. That is, you talk about something like magnetic fusion as this really exciting. Uh, opportunity. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the government doing something positively to pioneer some amazing new technology, allegedly, and how that pans out? Well, uh, the idea of uh, government uh, supporting uh, research in one form or another, especially basic research, is certainly uh, can is certainly defensible. If, if, and in, and I tried to make that point in, in my uh, book, although. It should be pointed out that the uh, government support of research doesn't necessarily mean that government has to do the research. It just means that there are a number of reasons uh, in economics why uh, we would get an undersupply of, uh, uh, of new ideas if we relied on the market alone. But with something like uh, Fusion, which has been a, a program that goes back to the 1950s, uh, it really is something that uh, the government has provided a, a large uh, amount of resources, and we still don't have it. We have some ideas of how it might be, why it might be feasible, how it might be uh, accomplished, but we're nowhere, we're at least 20, 30 years, as, as we always have been, from actually realizing anything from it. And it's quite possible that even when we do, if, if we do, uh, generate electricity from uh, an excess of heat from nuclear fusion, uh, that uh, it would be so expensive to operate that uh, we won't see very many of them or, or any of them uh, at all. But uh, one of the things that happens with uh, the government and nuclear fusion, of course, is that in 1980, uh, the government decided that, well, if they pass a bill uh, that says we will have nuclear fusion electricity by the year 2000, 
And doggone it, we will have nuclear fusion by the year 2000 because Congress has passed a bill and said it would happen. Of course, uh, that was uh, hubris in the extreme. It was uh, uh, arrogant and uh, ignorant of the way things actually work in, the, in terms of technology and technological diffusion and so on. So uh, while there are some good things that uh, come out of uh, government research or government-supported research, uh, there's no real solution, whatever that means even with respect to energy. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, essentially when, when the, the government has been most successful in terms of R&D, it's when they've given R&D money to people who are working on making things that already work better. Uh, so that, in fact, uh, some of the, uh, in, from the year 1980 to 2000, an analysis showed that uh, most of the money spent on uh, energy R&D and, uh, was wasted, but that some small grants given to uh, development of things like uh, greater efficiency in windows, for example, uh, actually paid off very well. And so there are times when uh, the government's uh, R&D policy uh, or R&D choices have uh, paid off. And sometimes, of course, they pay off way down the road. I mean, one, another thing that, it, that happens with energy policy is people are looking for a quick fix uh, when there's a crisis, and put that in quotes. They look for a quick fix, but in fact, R&D is something that... Uh, Someone could come up with something tomorrow and it'll be, hmm, that's interesting. And maybe 50 years from now, someone will say, you know, I just read a, this uh, patent that uh, was taken out 50 years ago. I think I know how to turn that into something important. So uh, uh, basically, a, a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the concern about uh, uh, government support and government actions, uh, it can be positive. Uh, but often it's it's put in such a in a framework that makes it very difficult for anything positive to come of it. Yeah, I have a much more negative view of government involvement in research. I'm curious. You mentioned that there are economic reasons uh, for this. I mean, I think it's very much guilty until proven innocent. Given, in particular, the uh, I mean, given morality. First of all, taking away people's money for purposes that they don't choose. But also, I mean, that's the most important. But also. I mean, government involvement in basic research and energy, I think, has led to enormous damages to nuclear power. And then if we look at it more broadly, government research into something like climate, it's completely turned the field into um, a destroyer of industrial civilization and all manufactured all these consensus. So essentially, you have the government being a monopoly decider on which technologies get promoted or which fields of scientific inquiry or which scientists get promoted. It just seems like there'd have to be a heck of an of some offsetting reason to justify uh, the carnage of that. Uh, well, yes, uh, obviously, uh, the one of the things that happens is, uh, especially with energy, is the uh, the effort to uh, simply promote R and D quickly turns into a, uh, a free for all of uh, rent seekers people coming to uh, forward with ideas that they think the government should fund and often the funding is based not on uh, uh, on whether you have a good idea or not but who you know and how well you're able to uh, market your uh, idea to the various bureaucrats and uh, uh, and politicians who are responsible for making the 
making the, the appropriation. Uh, but uh, there are economic reasons. This was something that was outlined by uh, Kenneth Arrow back in oh, about 50 years ago, uh, that essentially that uh, it's very difficult for a person to undertake basic research and to uh, guarantee that 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 uh, that any kind of thing that comes out of it uh, will be uh, theirs. In other words, uh, it's called non-appropriability. The, uh, there are a lot of things that can happen. There are a lot of benefits that can come from research uh, that uh, the individual entrepreneur would be unable to uh, uh, appropriate, unable to get those benefits. Uh, but that individual is stuck with all the costs of development and and so on. And so uh, it's from that argument, it's a more complicated uh, economic analysis, but it's uh, from that basic argument is how you wind up with a conclusion that uh, some kind of uh, support for uh, basic research uh, is uh, a can be, um, ideally should be, uh, something that would be of value to uh, society as a whole. Uh, in general, in terms of research, uh, there hasn't been that much that's been, uh, uh, shall we say, squandered on, in terms of uh, uh, energy policy, uh, energy technology. Uh, but uh, in terms of, uh, because where it really gets uh, squandered is when they decide, when government decides that they're going to be the ones to pick winners in the marketplace and commercialize uh, something that doesn't have any commercial viability. And of course, that goes back to uh, sin fuels, to uh, uh, various other kinds of uh, uh, fashions of the moment uh, that uh, they, uh, the government will spend two, three, four, five billion dollars. Uh, lately, it's been wind and solar, and then the amounts are even uh, greater than that. And uh, they, we have very little to show for it, and of course, uh, that's not research. Uh, they, uh, having a mandate for ethanol, any mandate, can't be research. Uh, having a, uh, uh, a commercialization goal where you uh, build factories to produce uh, mass quantities of something, that's not research. And that's where so much of the money gets squandered. Well, I, yeah, I mean, one reason I, I disagree with Arrow is that I think it's it's a very delicate thing what what research is and how different epistemologically the process of of a government doing quote research and a and a, a group of free people, including supported by charitable foundations and voluntary efforts as well as for profit corporations, as soon as it takes a monopoly stand in a field, I mean, we can see this very clearly with fields historically like nutrition where the government funds nutritional research and it comes up with this, quote, consensus that contradicts common sense of history that basically says, oh, you can eat all the sugar you want and all the carbohydrates you want and you'll be fine and fat is the enemy. I mean, they, they manufactured that. They manufactured a whole food pyramid on the basis mm. of their involvement in research. In climate, all anyone cares about in understanding the climate is this one thing that's 0.04% of the atmosphere and that it's a very clear trail from activists, politicians, different kinds of people involved in quote-unquote research. So they're saying all we're doing is we're contributing to the research. But as soon as you're putting money one way or another via force, 
you're completely destroying competition or overwhelmingly destroying competition. And I think as soon as it starts putting money in nuclear or other things, it's it's destroying competition for knowledge and the process in, in ways that we have no idea what the opportunity we have no idea what the damage has been since it's invisible. So I think it's like with the government and you know the government will talk about ARPANET and DARPANET for the internet and say, this is what government involvement in research looks like. You got Amazon.com. But it's ignoring what would have happened had it not been there. And it's ignoring all the invisible destruction by it distorting the basic process of discovering knowledge. Uh, well, yes. I mean, you, you're, uh, you've raised a, a number of important points, and uh, one is that there's a, uh, a trade-off that, uh, well, of course, there are trade-offs in everything, uh, which is something, by the way, that the government often ignores, when, especially when doing policy. They uh, offer people free lunches in which the, there's no trade-offs, everybody wins, which uh, isn't the way the world works. Uh, the idea that uh, somebody would uh, get that funding would come from some sources be outside of government is something that's encompassed in Arrow's uh, analysis. Uh, he just says uh, that uh, it would be that subsidies would be provided by uh, uh, non-profit uh, or various agencies that would be wanting to support. Uh, basic research, and it didn't. He didn't necessarily say it had to be government. In fact, he makes a point throughout the article of uh, of suggesting that uh, there are a number of possibilities uh, besides uh, a uh, something coming from, especially the federal government purse. Um, okay, let's let's talk about another aspect which I I really liked in your book, um, and just just for context. People have probably read, maybe most famously, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times a columnist who talks about a, quote, Manhattan Project for Energy. And there's this idea, well, if we can put a man on the moon, then why can't we achieve solar affordably? And this is something that's one of the most uneconomic arguments imaginable, and I, I really like how you deal with it. So could, could you just comment on, the, on what's wrong with this category of, of thought? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I wrote a... Uh... Uh, an op-ed that appeared in the Christian Science Monitor a few years ago, and the it, it starts this way: When was the last time you had to choose between a a trip to the moon or a trip to Paris? Uh, when was the last time you had to uh, decide on whether to use a uh, nuclear uh, explosive or uh, conventional explosives with the same yield? And I said, well, these are obviously ridiculous questions, but it's exactly the the point with respect to uh, energy technologies that are to become commercial uh, market uh, leaders uh, versus something that was meant to be a, uh, a one-shot prove we can do it uh, for whatever reasons that seemed to be appropriate for the government at that time. Uh, in the case of the Manhattan Project, obviously it was war. Uh, but uh, the idea that somehow you can just have the government create a commercially viable product is ridiculous. I mean, uh, I sometimes will say, okay, well, uh, it's true that the government can build a battleship, but uh, does, does that prove that they can run a candy store? And uh, really, the idea that the government is even uh, at all well-placed 
to be the uh, the leader of a commercial product to me is is simply ridiculous. And of course, uh, the fact is that after 40 years and uh, lots of billions of dollars in trying, uh, the government has never created a winning energy technology uh, that could survive without subsidies. And in fact. Uh, one of the things about the subsidies for energy programs is that they tend to be get more subsidies that uh, that rather than admit failure at times, uh, they simply uh, uh, ratchet up the the amount of money that they're giving out. Yeah, it's come up many times on the show because there's this inability to distinguish, as you're indicating, between a technological challenge and then a commercial challenge. And it just occurred to me, well, it's the equivalent of, of saying we can say, there's a difference between saying we can send, send one man to the moon and we can send every man to the moon. The right. latter is a commercial challenge. And that's, that's exactly, um, it's just a completely different category. And the fact that you can, that you can have a very expensive means of doing one thing does not mean that, does not imply that you can have a cheap means of doing it. Right, and yet it's one of the it's one of those things that uh, a political scientist referred to it as a higher order symbol, in which uh, the government meant uh, every, just about every president and every, uh, half of Congress or more will use this analogy of Manhattan projects and so on, and uh, Apollo programs uh, with respect to energy. And what it is is it it's a way of shutting off conversation say, well, you know, we could put a man on the moon, so why can't we do this? Uh, it's everybody remembers, at least of a certain age, remembers the Apollo pro program with a great uh, wonder and awe. Uh, but uh, the question is, is a silly question, and the reference is a totally inappropriate one. And yet, here we go, uh, just about every uh, time, uh, well, President Obama, in his, what, two, 2012 uh, State of the Union message said, uh, will fund the Apollo programs of our time, and he was referring to energy programs. And uh, my thought was, well, uh, then what? You, I'm not even sure what that even means in, in the, this particular context, except that we're probably going to be uh, funding programs that have uh, uh, almost guaranteed failure. Yeah, it, it has that remarkable persistence. I think part of what's appealing about it is that there is amazing and wonderful ingenuity involved in something like the Manhattan Project and a sense of purpose um, or, or the Apollo mission. And what I think is important for people to realize is that that sort of thing is exactly what happens on a free market. And that's what millions of people are engaged in. So just as you should admire the person, you know, the team that managed to, to land on the moon, which is just such an amazing thing, so you should admire the people who manage to figure out how to get fuel in your car on demand every day so you can go wherever you want, uh, whenever you want. And it's yet, it's this weird thing where ingenuity, like one form of ingenuity of the scientist and the engineer in its rawest form at the initial stage of development is respected. And yet the, in, the just as important ingenuity of actually making a technology useful to us is, is diminished as either unimportant or non-existent. Uh, well, yes, especially since it doesn't really uh, sound very sexy for the politician to say, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, we w there's not much we can do about it, but there are a lot of people working on these things who, uh, for their own benefit and for uh, the for market uh, uh, success, and uh, we should celebrate how well they're doing. Instead, uh, you get uh, the politicians say, "Well, we can we in Congress and we in the government are going to be bold and we're going to set forth and bring about." And of course. Uh, uh, they don't. Uh, that's the way they are courting votes, as opposed to uh, actually recognizing reality. Now, another issue you raise that's also a pet peeve of me, and therefore this show is the idea of energy independence. And I want to, before I ask you a question, I just read a quote from the beginning of one of the chapters, which I had never heard before, but I think is hilarious. And it's a friend of mine worked in the Ford administration on energy policy. When he started, he and his group were told that they needed to come up with a plan to make the U.S. energy independent in 10 years. After studying the problem for a while, they decided their first job would be to redefine independent. Their second job would be to redefine 10 years. Um, so t talk about this notion of independence in its uh, gruesome history. Well, of course, it was first raised by uh, Richard Nixon in, in November 1973 when he proposed what was called Project Independence. And that was that we would, uh, and he used the Apollo analogy, and he said we will be uh, completely self-sufficient in energy uh, by 1980. Uh, he hadn't done any kind of, uh, or had anybody done it, or actually don't expect that the president is going to do it himself, but uh, nothing was done to indicate that that was even remotely possible. Uh, but he, he proposed this, and everybody immediately glommed onto it. It became a very popular idea. We would have energy independence. Now, for Nixon, it meant, at least initially, complete self-sufficiency. Uh, by the time of the Ford administration, uh, it, first of all, they said, well, we can't do it by 1980, so we'll do it in 10 years. But there were like about five different definitions floating around about what en energy independence really meant. And some of them, we've, by the way, we've achieved. Some of them seem, uh, in retrospect, to be somewhat trivial. But over the years, we've had, I've counted at least a dozen different definitions of, of energy independence. And you can't make a policy or, or a set of policies that co can coherently uh, meet all of the dozen different definitions. When, I, when somebody tells me that uh, we, he's for energy independence, I ask three questions. First, what? What do you mean by energy independence, given that there have been so many different meanings? And then why? I mean, for example, the uh, idea that, that some people have been advancing in recent years is that, well, we'll keep money out of OPEC. Well, that really is ridiculous with respect to the fungibility of oil. Uh, even if we say, well, we won't buy from X country, then they'll just sell it to somebody else, and somebody else who had been selling to that somebody else will sell it back to us. And so that really has almost no meaning. So I ask why, and that gives me a number of answers, usually ones that don't make too much sense. And then finally I ask how. How are we going to become energy independent? And then that's where you get into this thing about, well, we'll have uh, solar panels on everybody's roof. We'll have uh, uh, electric cars for everybody that will, uh, that will work well and that'll cost only $12,000. And uh, all of these uh, fantasy uh, technological achievements that somehow are going to be 
uh, done simply because we decide we should have them. And so the question of energy independence actually becomes kind of uh, a problem. When it's raised, it generally means that somebody doesn't really have much in the way of any idea of what kind of energy, pro any policies we could, could uh, uh, use and or how we could go about getting them. Uh, it's uh, been one of the more pernicious ideas in, uh, in energy policy history is this idea that we're supposedly heading toward a goal of energy independence that means different things to different people and is almost certainly uh, unattainable or at least not attainable in a way that would make us better off. Uh, a friend of mine uh, reminds me that uh, uh, the uh, Romanian Ceausescu regime decided they were going to become uh, energy independent and did cut themselves off from any in imports of any kind of energy. And it was a total disaster, as everything else that the Ceausescu regime did was a disaster. But some of the things that, uh, with respect to energy, that were disastrous were that uh, once you limit your sources of uh, of supply, you're actually more vulnerable to uh, uh, the kinds of uh, problems like, uh, if, for example, if we cut off all oil imports, uh, what would happen when we'd have a major hurricane in the Gulf that would shut down our refineries? Well, it wouldn't be good, and it wouldn't make us better off. So uh, there are a lot of different things that come up with respect to uh, uh, to energy independence. I, I always have liked uh, the book that. Uh, uh, the Dangerous Delusion of, uh, I guess called Gusher of Lies. The yeah, by, by Robert Price. Right. I mean, I think that that really is basically uh, the, uh, a, a, real, a real bear, another real barrier. You know, uh, energy independence, Apollo analogies, these aren't uh, solutions in themselves. These are barriers to any kind of even thinking coherently about energy policy. But uh, unfortunately, they come up every time, all the time, and uh, make uh, and get us nowhere. Yeah, I think it highlights with the the importance of just having the right models and, and concepts. Because with uh, Apollo, you've just got this completely uh, wrong model of what it looks like to make progress in energy, what an advance would look like. And then here, you just have a concept that's. Uh, completely incoherent. It reminds me of the I just said, I said before. There's no we don't have a computer policy. Well, why don't we have computer independence? And in fact, if we don't have computer independence, we don't have energy independence because en every form of energy requires a lot of computers. So we might as well just <laughs> appreciate how amazing the global division of labor is, and then and and focusing on this sort of xenophobic idea of energy independence, like anti-market idea of energy dependence, detracts from the message of many of the an the energy independence types, which is we should be freer to develop domestic resources, which is true. But why not just say we're pro-freedom of production, not this, it's not we're right. anti-trade, in effect. Right. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, you know, it, it's certainly been uh, great that uh, fracking uh, has led to this uh, great uh, increase in our reserves of natural gas. But uh, some people are already or have been turning this out on its head and saying, oh, great, well, we'll be, we should turn ourselves into a natural gas economy and then become energy independent. And uh, all we need are the right government policies to make it happen. 
And my feeling is, you know, just look at what we're doing and see how it affects the economy and see how it affects production, and not just the production of energy, but uh, with respect to natural gas production of various things that use natural gas as feedstocks, for example, petrochemicals. And uh, just uh, this is something, you know, it, uh, let the market decide. Don't uh, start talking about how uh, we can achieve the, this uh, illusory, uh, not very in, intelligible or intelligent goal of energy independence, whatever you mean by it or whatever anybody, not you personally, but what anybody means by it, and uh, that we'll do it. Okay, now we've we found the panacea of natural gas. No, we've found really useful we have a more natural gas than we thought we did and so we can expand our use of it for various purposes and we can even export it which uh, uh, is uh, seems to be controversial for reasons that I can't figure out but uh, uh, in terms of uh, trying to understand why something is uh, considered taboo in terms of trade uh, then you uh, really start getting into uh, very uh, either illogic or simply uh, greed, where people are looking to uh, influence policy for their own uh, personal benefit, which, of course, goes on all the time. I'm glad you raised natural gas, because that, that and the whole hydraulic fracturing slash shale energy revolution are definitely where a lot of the tendencies that you note throughout the history of energy thinking, energy policy, are are just you know rearing their ugly heads. And in this case, you mentioned with the issue of natural gas it's it's we have this the market people in the market are doing these brilliant things to add a new option in effect and left to their own devices that option might be certain domestic factories will use more of it might be exported you know we've got a we've got a i mean we can produce it much more cheaply than a cheaply enough so it can be profitable to export in many ways and right. instead of saying well you guys should continue to be free and and pat us on the back and be proud they just have all these stupid schemes for oh well now let's have a goal for this many natural car gas cars by this year and then and then what this unleashes is these completely self-serving ideas by people like Dupont who say well no we want we want cheaper petrochemicals therefore we should be a like a self-sustaining gas colony and of course then that makes gas cheaper and then that makes it uneconomic to drill for in places it'll be and the whole thing is just get away like leave leave the productive people alone, and anyone who wants to be a a parasite, like Dupont or someone in this case, you know, don't let don't give them power. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, so, what do you see as the the future of of U.S. energy policy? First, we'll do what you actually see it as, and then what it what it should be. Uh, well, uh, I see it. Uh, uh, Basically, one of the things that's happened in the past 40 years is that we generally uh, go back to, albeit reluctantly and with distortions, to the, uh, letting the market decide. Uh, it's not the way they, that people talk about it because uh, we have to do this, we have to do that. And, of course, the government will get in the way of things like, uh, well, like, like uh, uh, exporting natural gas. Uh, and uh, so, but basically, we really have relied on the market for the past 40 years, and we haven't done so badly. And I think that one of the one of the good parts of the kind of conflict that goes on over energy policy uh, is that we wind up not uh, enacting too much that's that causes a great. Uh, 
uh, upheaval in, in the way we use energy. Now, one thing that's happened in the last couple of years is that uh, uh, President Obama used the, the uh, financial crisis and also the two bills from uh, 2005 and, and 2007, which were passed in crisis atmospheres. And so uh, with uh, in various ways, he's been able to, or his administration has been able to uh, sort of put in a, uh, uh, an energy policy that uh, uh, doesn't really come out of energy policy. It's sort of they, they've never passed a bill that was for a particular kind of energy program, uh, but they seem to have one and have been putting it in place and have been uh, rather disruptive in the process. Uh, but I'm, I feel fairly confident uh, that uh, probably in a, couple, in a few years uh, when there's changes in administrations that a lot of these programs will be shut down, as they always are, and we'll go back to letting the market decide, and that we'll generally be better off. And part, part of that may just be my hope uh, as opposed to uh, uh, what I think will happen, but that's the way the, that's been the pattern of things over the years that uh, – uh, like in, in the late 70s, early 80s, we passed an enormous number of very costly, very uh, uh, idiotic bills uh, uh, related to energy, uh, many of them which uh, stayed on the books uh, through very uh, obviously uh, uh, contradictory, uh, uh, through a contradictory environment, and they were essentially uh, written off. Uh, that some of them may still be on the books, but nobody pays any attention to them because they don't have any meaning. Uh, and uh, I would hope that that will be true of uh, something like the uh, AISA law, uh, the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, and its, uh, it's rather ridiculous uh, ethanol mandate, which uh, still remains on the books and which this current administration is, uh, is trying to... Uh, is committed to to upholding, uh, although there's been a little give on it in, in the last few days. But uh, it's not something. It really should have been repealed. It never should have been passed in the first place. Obviously, uh, what should energy policy be uh, is another question I address in my book in chapter nine. Uh, I try to lay out eleven different points about sort of rules underlying energy policy and some areas where energy policy might be uh, useful. And I, I've uh, sort of uh, condensed those into what I call the four I's, which are ideas, institutions, information, and infrastructure. Uh, the uh, ideas would be that there would be some uh, support for new ideas for basic research. Institutions that actually uh, all uh, business relies on institutions. I mean, the institutions like contracts and so on uh, are undergird all of our uh, our economic activity. Uh, but there are some that are specific to energy that uh, um, perhaps the uh, can be looked to and need to be addressed by governments, uh, especially since the, one of the things that with energy you get uh, uh, various issues in which there are three or four different uh, agencies that have jurisdiction and that kind of uh, of institutional uh, blockade or something uh, needs to be be addressed by uh, government. It's not that institutions need to be abolished. It need it's or organizations need to be abolished. It's that there needs to be clear rules of the game 
for all participants. Information, uh, I've had some discussions with people who say that my praise for the uh, Energy Information Agency Administration is misplaced, uh, but it, it has been useful, I know, for me. And, yeah, me, uh, me too. <laughs> and infrastructure, uh, there's definitely a good case to be made, as I have in a previous book, that uh, the natural monopoly model of, uh, of energy uh, industries is obsolete and needs to be changed. But for the time being, things like uh, the grid system and the uh, pipelines are often under the jurisdiction of uh, various governments. And uh, the, in those cases, there should be some thought given to uh, how they can be privatized, what kinds of uh, improvements can be made, especially with these smart grid ideas. And so uh, these are areas where government will have to be involved because right now they're the owners of, or, or the managers of, of these particular areas. So that's what I would like to, I have as an overall uh, heading for uh, for energy policy of modesty, that uh, right now we have very immodest policies in which uh, a government purports to uh, change the world and solve all of our problems through uh, energy programs. I mean, uh, if you read the, the pro preface to the Waxman-Markey bill that was supposedly about climate, uh, it was going to create millions of green jobs. It was going to change our energy structure. It was going to do all of these things. And was what I called totally immodest, uh, very arrogant kind of uh, projecting of what you can actually get out of this, uh, out of the process of, of making energy policy. And until some kind of modesty is uh, comes into the policymaking process, recognizing where government is really limited in what it can do and uh, really limits the kinds of things it can do. Uh, I think that we will get bad policies that will be disruptive, hopefully not so much so that we can't get back to our default of letting the markets decide. Uh, one of the things I do suggest, uh, in my book I give a somewhat of an argument about uh, the abolition or not of the uh, uh, Department of Energy. Uh, I'm somewhat coming around to the view that it really should be uh, uh, abolished because it, it was formed for reasons that were never true to begin with. So its mandate is uh, was uh, was and is uh, really uh, not very productive. All right, so a lot a, a lot there. So for for those of you who read the book, ch uh, check out chapter nine for that. Uh, one one final question that occurred to me during. When, when you were talking about what you expect to happen, given given your study of the history of, of these different ideas and policies waxing and waning, what do you think of the current international and national proposals in the vein of cap and trade, but that continue about drastically reducing CO2 emissions and therefore carbon-based energy? How much is that something that, that could really happen? Uh I don't think it's going to be a uh, something that's going to happen, in, at least in the, the way that uh, some people talk about it. Uh, I think that it's a very bad idea uh, to uh, have energy policy and to focus on energy for uh, some uh, climate goal like reduction in uh, CO2, regardless of what you think about 
the idea of climate change, the idea that if you put up windmills and solar panels that uh, that is going to solve the problem of CO2 emissions is simply ridiculous. Uh, in a number of cases uh, that have been documented, the amount of uh, CO2 that was emitted uh, didn't change very much, even though a whole uh, fields of, uh, of so solar panels and windmills were, were set up. But because they're intermittent sources, uh, because they're unreliable and non-dispatchable, uh, in some cases, coal plants are kept in readiness, which means that coal is being burned and not being used for productive purposes, just being burned to make sure that the uh, the grid doesn't uh, go out of whack and a major blackout occur. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've thought that cap and trade was not a was not a very good idea, but at least it would would focus on CO2 instead of uh, this idea that somehow if we uh, have a, a solar panel on everybody's roof and a whole bunch of windmills, that somehow that's going to uh, solve all of our problems. It will actually uh, increase all sorts of problems and will be ineffective to boot. All right. Peter, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Where can listeners learn more about you or, or see more of your work? Uh, well, I, I have a website, which is uh, peterzgrossman.wordpress.com. Uh, 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 there's some of my work is there. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, uh, there's also some of my work, I believe, that's up at uh, at Butler University where I teach, and uh, uh, of course, uh, the uh, my new book is available primarily uh, on uh, websites at Amazon.com. And uh, by the way, at Amazon, there's a Peter Z. Grossman page that uh, has all of my books. This is uh, my seventh book. Uh, including uh, other books on energy, uh, and so uh, all of so that would be one resource actually to uh, see and to get some idea of some of my uh, the uh, other areas of my work as well as other per uh, works on on uh, energy the energy field. Okay, great. Well, we'll uh, put up the podcast later today, and we'll put all of the that information. Uh, in a linkable form so people can click on it easily. Uh, Peter, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, well, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, happy to do it. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Same to you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again to Peter Grossman for coming on the show. Uh, definitely, if you're interested in U.S. energy policy and the history of it, uh, the book is, is worth getting. There's a lot of good info in it. Uh, particularly if you're economically inclined. There's a lot of different economic arguments and classifications in the book, um, and you might not agree with all of them. Some of them I, I don't agree with in terms of uh, exactly how something like market failure is thought of or even that as a term, uh, but it's it's for sure interesting reading, and it's, it's a very valuable addition to the energy uh, literature. So again, thanks for, for uh, to Peter for coming on. Uh, just in closing, I wanted to express one thought, which I expressed briefly during the show, which is the importance of always keeping in mind the moral dimension of these issues. Um, in discussions of economic issues or cultural phenomena, unfortunately, the default is to treat society or the public as this 
single monolithic entity and the government has some sort of right to act on behalf of the public as a whole. But there is no public as a whole, there's just individuals. And individuals are the starting point. Before we can know what's good for the group, if that, is any, if that has any legitimate context or connotation, we have to know what it means to be good for the individual. And, and you know, ultimately what it means to be good for the individual is to act to promote his own life in a way that's in harmony with others acting to promote what's uh, benefiting their lives. And so when we look at something like scientific research, the first question is, what is the moral thing to do? And the moral thing to do is to is for people to be free to support scientific research as they judge best. And even if you could show, well, if we force these people to do X, it'll lead to that scientific discovery in 40 years, that doesn't prove anything about the individual. Um, in the essay, Capitalism, uh, sorry, What is Capitalism? by Ayn Rand in the book Capitalism, Getting an Ideal, she uses the example, I believe, of you know, a young woman buying lipstick and how it's immoral to take away her money to buy lipstick in the name of some future scientific uh, discovery. Now, what capitalism allows you is the freedom to produce the wealth and then consume the wealth as you choose so that you can spend, hopefully, some of it on lipstick and maybe some of it on more long-range uh, research. But it's important to take the perspective of what really matters are individual lives uh, now, and that people should be free to live them to the fullest. And any policy that, that justifies people suffering now, having their rights violated in the name of the future, is not a moral policy. So that's, that's my final thought for today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. I definitely in, enjoyed it. Thanks again to Peter Grossman for being on the show. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Oh, and of course, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.